0: Well, I want to encourage you now, if you would, grab your Bibles and let's open them to, or if you got an electronic device, turn it on and open it to Luke chapter 24 this morning is, uh, we begin a new series together this morning. Uh, it's going to be about six weeks, and you can see there, it's entitled, Who is Jesus? Who is this man from Nazareth? who was born in Bethlehem, who exactly is he? Why does he matter? And really, how can he change our life? This is what we're going to be studying over the the period of the next six weeks, give or take uh, a little bit. Now, most of you have probably seen this or done this. I'm just going to ask you to play along. In my hand here, I've got a red card and a blue card. And I'm going to hold them up, and I want you to tell me which one, according to your eyes, is bigger. We ready? All right. Red card or blue card? All right. It looks like the blue one, right? Well, let's just play along. Now it looks like the red card is bigger. Now, what is it? Now, you already know, because your mind has told you, or you've done this before, you already know they're the same size. So why is it that when I hold it one way, red card looks bigger, I flip it around this way, now the blue card looks bigger? Well, it's an optical illusion. It's designed to trick your mind because your eyes look at something and it forms a picture and immediately begins to tell you what you're seeing. But what if you can't trust your eyes? What if what you are seeing isn't actually what you're seeing. Well, this is probably exactly how the disciples felt on this resurrection day that we're going to study here in just a few minutes. You see, after all, I mean, they saw Jesus crucified earlier in the week. They watched him die. So how is it possible that he was now standing right in front of them? Should they have known? I mean, how could they have known? Well, let's look at it together. The one big thing this morning is simply this that the Bible is sufficient to produce faith in order to be saved. So I want to start Luke chapter 24 and verse 36. And I'm going to ask if you're able, would you stand as we honor the reading of God's word together? Luke 24, 36 says this And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted and supposed that they had seen the Spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled? And why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and of a honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the opportunity just to study it. But God, I pray that we wouldn't bring our thoughts and opinions or study of the Word of God. But rather, we would simply allow your Holy Spirit to take your Word and to speak it to us. So, God, I ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Again, the one big thing this morning is this, that the Bible is sufficient to produce faith in order to be saved. There are really four movements or four parts in this story of the gospel that we want to unpack this morning. The first one is this, Jesus' appearances. Now, Luke chapter 24 reveals three of the ten appearances post-resurrection that Jesus had in the 40 days he walked the earth after the resurrection. Now, the three that are given here in Luke 24 all occur on that Sunday morning, that first day of the week. We, we see him reveal himself to the lakes, and then to two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And then they are going to be talking to the disciples and Jesus is going to appear to those ten disciples in the end of our text here. The Apostle Paul would go on in 1 Corinthians 15 and talk about even more resurrection appearances that jesus made in those 40 days and of note was one that he said that jesus appeared to more than 500 of our brothers and the greater part of them were still alive at the day of paul's writing so over 500 people at one time saw jesus now why do we mention these post-resurrection appearances for this reason There is more than enough evidence. In fact, it is overwhelming and sufficient evidence to prove this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. It is a fact and it occurred. And because of his resurrection, everything changed. And we need to understand this, that so often people go, well, you know, I'm just not really sure. Do you know that there are more fragments of the New Testament? Over 6,000 of them that are in existence. That is more than 600 times the number of copies of Shakespeare's writings, of Homer's Iliad, and even Aristotle's writings combined. All of this is to say that there is overwhelming evidence of Jesus' resurrection. That it is knowable if we simply trust what scripture reveals. There's not only the evidence of scripture there's the evidence of an empty cross and an empty tomb. There is the evidence of the changed lives of the disciples. Yo Peter we've all heard of Peter. He denied Jesus three times. Fifty days after the resurrection that coward denier became a loud proclaimer of Jesus. God used him to lead 3,000 people to salvation on the day of Pentecost. Just 50 days separated the denial from his proclamation. We think of all of the apostles there in Scripture. every one of them was martyred or persecuted for their faith. Now let me ask you this if what you were saying was a lie, would you be willing to give your life for it? At some point you go, just kidding, guys. Just kidding, April fools. But none of them did. In fact, there are over uh, approximately 90 to 100,000 people this year who will die as a martyr for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there's overwhelming sufficient evidence to show us that Jesus is exactly who he said he was and that he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And even in light of this overwhelming evidence, I mean, here in Luke 24, this is on the heels of two disciples retelling how they walked with Jesus on a road to Emmaus. They're retelling the the story of that encounter with Jesus when Jesus stands right in front of them. And what's his first words to them? Peace be unto you. Do not be afraid. Yet in light of the overwhelming evidence of his resurrection, the second thing that we see in this text is this. The disciples doubted. Fact of the matter, if we were to sum up Luke chapter 24 in one word, I would say the word would be doubt. Early in the morning in the opening of Luke 24, we see the women going to the the tomb. They've got some spices. They are expecting to anoint the body of Jesus because in their haste, Jesus wasn't given a proper burial after his crucifixion. Now, clearly, there's only one reason you would go to a tomb. You're expecting the body to be there. And so these women who are going early on that Sunday morning are expecting Jesus' body to be there. What are they greeted by? Two angels going, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen, as he said. Later on, one of the women would even have an encounter with Jesus. So it changes them. They are running back to tell the disciples, we have seen the risen Christ. Now, what was the disciples' reaction. Well, verse 11 sums it up. And there, that's being the women's, and their words seemed to them as idle tales, and they believed them not. The women are coming and saying, we have seen Jesus. And the disciples are like, no you didn't. I don't know what you saw, but you, that wasn't Jesus. Again, why? Because they are using their human reasoning. We watched him die earlier in the week. We saw him die. We know he is dead. Human reasoning, human logic says that when a person dies, they're dead. You don't expect, think of when one of your loved ones passes away. You go to the funeral home. You don't expect in the middle of that service for that loved one to come walking into that funeral home, do you? Why? Because human reasoning and logic says they're dead. This is what they are using here. They are struggling to believe Jesus' resurrection because it just doesn't make sense to them. So then there's these two disciples a little bit later in Luke 24. And they're walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus comes and he's talking to them. And it's not until Jesus breaks bread and gives it to them that their eyes are open and they're like, wow, this is Jesus. They said, when he spoke, didn't our hearts burn within us? Like, shouldn't we have known this guy? How is it that we didn't see it or understand it? And so they were doubting. And so they run back and they're telling the disciples. And the disciples are still going... All right, I've heard the women, and I've heard you guys. I still don't believe it. So here's Jesus standing in the presence of them, and he says this. Do not be afraid, or peace be unto you. But they were terrified, supposing that they had seen the Spirit. They thought it was a ghost. Why? Because human logic says dead people don't come walking through doors. Their minds are struggling to wrap around the reality that's right before them. They would rather trust human reasoning than divine revelation. And before we get hard on the disciples for their doubt, can we just be honest? We're a lot the same. Scripture lays out for us what we ought to believe. It reveals who God is and what He is like and It reveals so much information. But so often we want to ask the question, was that really what it says? Does that really like apply to me today? We doubt what God has revealed to us. Because we would rather trust our human logic than we would God's word. Yet scripture says four different times that we must walk by faith and not by sight. That God is going to do and has done things from the beginning of time that simply don't make sense. But just because it doesn't make sense doesn't mean that it's not right. We, just like that car, those cards I was holding up, We want to look with our eyes and go, oh, yeah, that one's bigger. Oh, well, no, that one's bigger. Even though in our minds we know the cards are the exact same size. We know it, but we want to trust what we see rather than what we know. And what we know is this, that God is the creator, that he is a sovereign God who is loving, gracious, kind. He is good. He is holy. He is just. This is what we know. Why? Because God has created us with a conscience to know these things. Why is it that we as parents want to give good gifts to our children? Because God's given good gifts to us. That's what Jesus says. We know these things, but we doubt because it doesn't make sense. And there's some of you here probably this morning who are going, you know, I want to believe in God. And if God would just speak in an audible voice, then I would believe him. Or, you know, you, you got this, this decision that's before you. It's kind of an important decision. And, and what do we say? God, just give me a sign. You give me a neon sign, God, and I will do it. I will believe it. We're going to come back to this in just a little bit. But the reality is, no, you won't. And your life right now is proving it. So we see there's plenty of proof of Jesus' resurrection. But the disciples are still doubting. In light of hearing Jesus, seeing Jesus, touching Jesus, seeing him eat in front of them, they still don't believe this is Jesus until God does one thing. And we see it's the third point of this text. And it is this, that Jesus opens their understanding. Jesus had told them on three separate occasions before it happened that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be handed over to sinful men, he was going to be crucified, and on the third day he was going to rise. Three times before it happened, Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. Now, why would Jesus tell them what was going to happen before it happened? Well, John 14, 29 answers that. It says this, I have told you before it happened so that when it happens, you may believe. Why has God given us his word? Because he wants us to know it. He wants us to know the truth. He wants us to be able to have a relationship with him. And he knows there's only one way that's possible. And so rather than leaving us to our own devices to figure it out, God has supernaturally revealed it to us. And he has preserved it for us. But how did he do it? Not through human reasoning, not through logic, not through sight or the five senses. Rather, he has done it through his word. And we see here in the text, Starting in verse 44, it says, and he said to them, these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the Old Testament tells you who I am. That's the threefold division of the Old Testament. The law of Moses, the first five books, then the prophets, prophetical books, and and the Psalms, all right, the, the writings. These are all the collection of the old testament god gave us the old testament so that the new testament would make sense so that we could know who jesus is now let me ask it this way if somebody came up and told you nine things that were going to happen and they told you the date it was going to happen exactly how it happened and it happened perfectly when they told you a tenth would you believe them Probably, hopefully. And here's the truth. Jesus has done more than just tell you 10 things. In fact, if you were to search the Old Testament, you will find over 300 prophecies about the Messiah, including where he would be born. Now, it's true. You might be able to arrange the date and place of your death. Okay? Such as husbands here. If you start a senseless argument with your wife, you can pretty much guarantee what's going to happen to you. Right? You might be able to arrange your death, but how many of you arranged your parents and the place you were going to be born? Yet scripture hundreds of years before it happened, said that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be born in Bethlehem. It said he was going to be betrayed by someone close to him. It said that he was going to live in Egypt for a while and all of these other things. Why did God give these to us? So that when we read Scripture, we will know it's true. You think about all the things that have changed in your lifetime and in mine. You know, when Diane and I first uh, had our, our oldest son, he would run pretty high fevers, 104, nearly 105. The wisdom of the pediatricians at that point was this, put him in a lukewarm bath, help cool him off, But don't make it too cold. By the time, just a few years later, we got to the birth of our youngest son, he would run very high fevers. So we would think lukewarm bath, right? What do pediatricians tell you now? That's one of the worst things you can do. Can y'all get on the same page here? But I mean, think of all the other things that, that have changed over time. And do you know that ever since it was recorded that Scripture has not changed once? Scripture says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Human logic may change, but the divine Word of God won't. And so we need to understand this, that God opens our understanding of who He is, but more importantly, who we are scripture if you were to go ask somebody out in society, what do you think about human, the human race most of the time you're going to hear something along the lines of well they're a good person, they got good heart you know, they're just trying to make the world a little better and we can go and we can read scripture and we're going to read the exact opposite who's right God's been proven right every single time. And if God has been right on 300 straight occasions, what's the chance of him being right occasion 301 and beyond? It's high. And this is the thing about it. If Jesus rose from the dead... If he was born of a virgin in the city of Bethlehem, if he lived a sinless life, was betrayed by one of the closest, and he was crucified and rose on the third day, if all of that is true, then the rest of what Jesus said is also true. And what Jesus said is, one day I'm coming back. And that one day everyone's going to stand before him. Jesus opens our understanding through the scriptures. And this is why this matters for you and I. If you are here and you are a child of God, I want you to understand this fourth movement in the text. And it is this, they are sent. I want you to look here, verse 47. Starting in verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written that thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things church God has given us one mission and one message it is to make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe that is to do all things that he has commanded us Jesus never told us go build your church he never said, go build beautiful, hundreds of thousands, million dollar buildings. He never said, go build a big ministry. He said, I'm going to build my church. He said, you go preach repentance and that the kingdom of God is at hand. Two weeks ago, there was a prayer God, in your bulletins for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. In fact, there's there's an envelope in there if you want to give even today as it's the last day for it. And 100% of that offering goes to fund the North American Mission Board and its missionaries trying to reach North America with the gospel. And when you open that prayer, God, the first thing that you would have seen was this. That two-thirds of those living in North America do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Church, can I ask you something? When's it going to be enough? When are our hearts going to be broken over the fact that grandparents, moms, dads, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, cousins, aunts, uncles, people that our kids play ball with, people that we work with, when is it going to be enough to realize and to break our hearts that the overwhelming majority of people that we get in contact with on a daily basis, if they died today or Jesus returned today, they would wake up to an eternal reality of hell? When is it going to break our hearts? The culture knows our politics. The culture knows our stance on social justice issues. Our culture knows our view on the weather, on our favorite sports teams, and all of this. When are they going to know the gospel? When are we going to weep before a holy God who will only allow people who come in Jesus' name? When are we going to weep over those who are lost? How many caskets am I or Pastor Harry going to have to stand over? Before we go, we've got to do something. We can't save the world, but we can tell the world starting with one person. Who's your one? You're going to be hearing an awful lot about that in the coming weeks, but who's your one? We have been sent not to rid the world of disease, of hunger, of homelessness, we have been sent to the world to preach the gospel. And God has given us his spirit and his grace to accomplish this. But I want you to notice what it also says in this text. It said that repentance at the changing of our minds and remission of sins, that's forgiveness, the removal of them, should be preached in his, Jesus name. There are many paths that lead to hell. There's only one that leads to God. And it's not going to church. It's not preaching sermons. It's not giving to the church. It's not serving in a church. It's not being a good person. It's not doing a lot of good works. The only path to God is not in what we do, but faith in what Jesus has done on the cross See, every other world religion tells you that if you want to please that false god, this is what you do. Only Christianity says it's not what you do, but rather it is what has been done for you that will give you a right standing with God. Think about all the other world religions. They're all about how you can do something to earn something. Christianity says you can't earn a thing. It's freely lavished on you. For by grace have you been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. The very fact that Jesus came and died and rose again proves this one immutable fact. You and I cannot save ourselves. If you and I could be good enough, if we could do enough good things to earn our way into heaven, then Jesus died for nothing. But the very fact that we celebrate the resurrection proves that we need a relationship with Him. And that it can only be accomplished through faith in what he did on the cross. But why does any of this matter? If you remember, we said we were going to come back and talk about those people who think, you know, if God just speak in an audible voice, I believe him. Yeah, if God just give me that neon sign, whoop, yep, I'm right there. Where does this leave us? Let me say before the point of application pops up let me say this I am not against any evangelistic program In fact the matter for years when I first got here we continued to teach faith evangelism There's evangelism explosion uh, there's way of the master more than a carpenter and a whole lot more So I'm not against any of those but I will tell you the greatest and most effective witnessing or evangelistic tool that we have in our tool belt is the Word of God. And this is why this text matters to you and I this morning. The Bible must be enough. For those of you who go, you know what, man, I, if, if I just hear God, that'd be enough. You know, there's actually a story in Scripture about him. Okay, it's found a few chapters earlier in the Gospel of Luke. It's Luke chapter 16. And it's about two men. One's a rich man and one's a man, poor man named Lazarus. And they both died and Lazarus had faith in God. And so he went uh, to a, pre-resur- a pre-resurrection place known as paradise or, or Abraham's bosom. It's where all people who trusted in God before the resurrection, that's where they went. The rich man, he died, he didn't have faith in God, and so he went to Hades. And one day, this rich man lifts up his eyes, and Scripture says, being in torment. He says, oh, Abraham, please tell Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and just place it on my tongue. So I'm not in so much torment. Abraham said, can't do it. So then the conversation flips there. And the rich man goes, Well then, Abraham, send my send Lazarus back, because I got five brothers. Send Lazarus back to them and, and have Lazarus tell them about the reality of hell and how terrible it is, and so that they'll hear him and believe him and, and not come here. And Abraham's response to him was this: they have Moses and the prophets. Now the rich man goes, No, 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 that's not enough. It's not enough, Abraham. If you send Lazarus back and he tells them about this place, they'll believe. Abraham's response to that was this. If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe even though one rises from the dead. The point is this. If we won't believe this, then there's nothing else God can do that's going to convince us of who he is and our sin and our need to be saved. It's why one of my favorite ways of sharing the gospel is to either have my phone with me or have a little pocket New Testament and take it with them. And I'll, I've will i got the verses highlighted. I'll go to Romans 3.23. You know what I do? I turn around and go, read the highlighted verse for me. Because I don't want anybody to go, oh, well, that's just what you're saying. No, I'm going to let you read it. And Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned, and come short of the glory of God. So they read and I go, all right, what does that mean? It's kind of hard to get away from that word all, right? It means we've all done something wrong, okay? So then we'll flip over to Romans 6.23. Again, I'll turn it and go. Can you read that for me? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. My next question, what does that mean? Well, if I got paid for what I did, death would be it. You're right—eternal separation from God. But did you notice the second half of that verse with the free gifts of God? This is what you deserve. This is what God desires to give. And then we turn to Romans five eight. Again, I'll turn it around. Can you read that for me? But God demonstrated His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for me. What does that mean? Means God loves me. That's right. Even though we sin and we deserved His judgment, God loves us. And I turn to one final passage, Romans ten thirteen. Guess what I do? You're right. Turn it to him. Go. Can you read that highlighted passage? Romans ten thirteen says, "For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." What does that mean? It means that if I admit who I am and what I deserve. When I trust in what Jesus did and God will forgive me and I'll be saved. My next question is, okay, are you ready to receive this gift of salvation that Jesus purchased for you with his blood? There's nothing we have to memorize. We allow the Spirit of God to use the Word of God. And when we do that, three things happen. The Holy Spirit brings conviction of our sin. Because is there honestly anyone here who can say, I've never done anything wrong? By the way, if you do, you just did. So that takes us all out, right? Cool. So the Spirit brings conviction of our sin. And that conviction can produce confession, an agreement with what God has said, that what I've done is wrong. I've been rejecting Him. But He died in my place confession leads to conversion, we're saved your greatest need this morning is not a new job it's not more money it's not even a better spouse your greatest need the greatest need of all humanity is a relationship with the God who died in our place And the resurrection provided that opportunity. The blood of Jesus is sufficient for every single person. But it's only applied to those who surrender in grace. No longer trusting what you've done to be good enough, but trusting entirely in what Jesus did for you. What are you going to do with what you've heard today? There's only two possible responses this morning. Acceptance or rejection. And you're not responding to me. Listen, I'm a sinner who has just been saved by grace. You're not responding to a church. Church can't save you. You're responding to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. For some of you, that's where you need to start this morning. You've played church. If somebody said, hey, what do you think of that person? Oh, they're a good person. They do a lot to help people, okay? But it's not enough. You need to surrender to the grace of Jesus Christ today. Some of you have, to the glory and praise of God, but you're living in disobedience right now because you've not shared the gospel. I know this isn't gonna be very comfortable for a moment but to not share the gospel at best means you're disobedient because Jesus told us to and at worst it means we're deceived about our salvation I mean if we're really so grateful for what Jesus did for us how could we not tell others And so for some of you you need to confess Lord I've been disobedient I haven't shared the gospel And when we were talking about the the number of people that don't have a relationship with Jesus, and we were talking about how it could be friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, there was a name that popped into your head. You need to confess not having shared the gospel with them, but then ask God to to give that opportunity. And you can come and you can pray, and you can just pray for that person by name every single day. And ask God to give you that opportunity to share the gospel. Do they respond, do they not? I don't know. All we can do is give it to them. What they do with it's between them and God. But church, it's got to be the time where we stop ignoring what God has called us to do. We stop being okay with people dying and going to hell. When we stop building lavish, luxurious buildings for our comfort and we set up an evangelistic booth at the very gates of hell, it's time. Too many people are dying without Christ for you and I to sit back and do nothing. How will you respond? Would you stand with me as we're going to pray together? Father, in the quietness of this moment, as we continue to approach the end of this Sunday service, Father, we count it a joy and a privilege to be able to come in to worship you. And Lord, this day, uh, above all other days, such a tremendous reminder of your love for us and your grace. Father, we don't want to waste that opportunity that we've been given. We don't want to miss your grace. So Father, for that person who has never trusted you, God, I pray right now that even... In this moment, they're crying out to you. Seeing their sin, but more importantly, seeing the love of the Savior. That today would be that day of salvation. But Father, for that person, those people here today that have family members and friends who they know aren't saved, Lord God, would you give us a burden for them? Would we just cry out their name before you? your holy throne day and night? Would we look for opportunities to share the gospel that for your glory they might be saved? However you have spoken, God help us to respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one more song. It's Blessed Redeemers, page 148.